welcome to Foresight with me, Greg Williams. Before we start the conversation, I have a request. If you're enjoying this podcast series, I encourage you to go on whatever platform you get your podcast on and give us a five-star review as it really does help us to grow the wired community. Many thanks. Today, we'll explore how we can solve global challenges such as climate change, pandemics, war, poverty, migration and extremism with the good country equation, a formula for empowering governments and future generations to collaborate. We'll investigate how we can repair the world in one generation, exploring where we've gone wrong and sharing suggestions for empowering governments and future generations to collaborate and protect the future of humanity. I'm delighted to welcome today's guest, Simon Anholt. Simon spent the last 20 years as an advisor to the presidents, prime ministers and monarchs of 56 countries. He's devised strategies and policies to help them engage more imaginatively and productively with the global community. He's the founder of the Good Country Project and the Good Country Index, the only survey to rank countries according to their contribution to humanity and the planet rather than their domestic performance. He's also an author of six books, including his newest release, The Good Country Equation, How We Can Repair the World in One Generation. Simon, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Greg. Thanks very much for having me on the programme. I'm glad to be here with you. So how we can repair the world in one generation, it, it's a big claim. Um, and I'd, I'm really excited to kind of get into and, uh, this and talk to you a little bit about your ideas behind that. But first of all, I'm really intrigued um, to understand from you why you chose to write the book in the way that you have because it's 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 a very you know it's, it's an academic book but you've written it in a very accessible way in, in the first person so what what were your thoughts around that um well it's quite simple i just wanted it to be readable basically <laughs> because um i think the the, the problems that I write about in the book you know what's gone wrong with the world and why doesn't it work as well as it needs to these are issues for everybody to understand and yet most of the books that come out day after day, week after week, talking about the state of the world and how we can repair it, they're only really books that you can understand or read if you've got a PhD in international relations. And because it's my subject, I feel I have to buy all these books and I try to read them. And to be perfectly honest, I never get past the end of the first chapter right. because they're just so dreary. And <laughs> it's not, you know, they're full of expertise, but, but they're, they're written in black and white. They're like textbooks. And it's impossible to read a textbook unless somebody's forcing you to. Um, and so I thought, I'm going to write this book in colour. You know, it's it's allowing yourself a huge luxury if you add yet another book to the vast pile of books that come out in the world. There are already far too many. And I just thought the only way that this book can justify its existence is if it's as readable as the best kind of adventure story. So I decided to do this kind of experiment where I weave uh, a tragico-comical autobiographical travelogue into a thesis about the state of the world. And um, does it work? I don't know. You've read it. <laughs> I hope it does. Mission accomplished, Simon. It's, it's, it's incredibly readable and, and very entertaining. Uh, whilst also, I think, being very, very... Um, it, it explains, I think, a lot about some of the challenges that we are facing at the moment. Um, but I, I'm, I'm interested to get a sense from you. You talk about, you know, there's this whole kind of, uh, you know, plethora of books on the, these, these, in these kinds of areas, very academic books. Why do you think we're spending so much time reflecting on what's wrong with the world? Is this a particularly contemporary phenomenon, do you think? It is kind of. Um, 
I think it's, um, to paraphrase Michael Gove, I think we're all experts now. Um, and that's partly the media. It's a wonderful thing. It means that we're all of us reading about all kinds of things that go on in all kinds of places all the time. So we're that much more aware of living in a planet as opposed to living in a village or a district. So we know about what's going on. And then that's combined with the fact that what's going on is there's a lot of it. And a lot of it is really bad. And a, a lot of it is also really good, but it's just in the nature of the way that news media works. And I think the way that people consume it, that we tend to give more emphasis to the bad stuff, what the psychologists sometimes call negativity bias. Somehow the terrifying stuff just makes a more urgent story. And we're often, I think, in danger of losing sight of the fact that whether you're looking at the state of the world or the progress of globalization or the state of society, there's actually just as much good as bad, but it just doesn't seem to make the news. So again, one of the things, I mean, I'm stupidly optimistic at the moment. I, I'm the only person I know who feels this way. We need this is an absolutely, we yeah, well, we do need it. And, and it's a disease of my own that I've given up trying to cure. I just think this is an amazing time and exactly the right time to be talking about these things. Well, I hope, I hope it's uh, an infectious disease, um, you know, mm -hmm. unlike others I could mention. But I, I think that we, we are, I think to, many of us overwhelmed by the complexity of the world at the moment and the, mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, we are uh, so interconnected uh, as a species. Uh, it's very hard now to form a coherent sense of how to fix the many, cha many challenges we face. H how do you think about that in terms of, you know, how we, how we proceed, how we go about uh, uh, embarking on, on, on real progress, real change? I think you're absolutely right. I think it is bewildering and a little bit overwhelming. I mean, the United Nations, bless their cotton socks, have devised this, this scheme called the Sustainable Development Goals, and there are 17 of them. And that's been very helpful in a way, because what they do is they try to break it down to a relatively simple model. Here are basically 17 things that humanity needs to do over the next 20, 30 years if it's going to survive and prosper. But in the end, I'm not sure, I don't want to criticize the UN because thank heavens for the UN, but it is kind of 17 reasons to feel really depressed. Um, <laughs> but, but, but what I do is I do what they do. I try to break it down. And I've actually gone much further than breaking it down to 17. I've broken it down to two. I really think there are only two things wrong with the world. And that's the basis of, this, of the, the argument in, in the book. I think it's really that simple. Go on, you have to now tell us what those two things are. I thought I'd be polite and wait for you to ask me. Um, <laughs> the, the, there are two things wrong with the world. Basically, one is the way that countries behave and one is the way that people behave. Mm -hmm. Now, you said that and you said everything and you said nothing. But, but what I mean by that is that if you look at all those challenges, in fact, you get a whiteboard and you write a list of the 30 most terrifying things that humanity is facing at the moment. It really is terrifying and we can all do it. You know, it's climate change, it's the pandemic, it's fundamentalism, it's terrorism, it's migration, it's human rights abuses, it's education, it's small arms proliferation. Um, um, you, you could go on all day, it's not difficult. But if you take a step back and you look at them really, really hard and you say, well, hold on, do we actually know the answers to all of these challenges? And if you go through them and you look up the latest expertise, you'll say, actually, yes, we do. We do know how to solve every single one of them. It's no mystery. We know how to fix climate change. We know how to deal better with migration. We've had experts working on these things in many cases for centuries. So why don't we fix them? Well, the reason why we don't fix them is because we don't bring enough resources to bear on the problem because each one of these challenges is too big 
um, climate change is far too big for China to solve on its own or America to solve on its own because it's a thoroughly universal, thoroughly globalized problem. And the same goes for all the other challenges in the list. None of them are within the grasp of any single organization or nation state to be able to solve. Therefore, in order to fix them, we have to collaborate and we don't, or at least we don't collaborate well enough, frequently enough, sustainedly enough. That's the problem. So the real problem here, and this is the first of my two problems, is the culture of governance, that the nation states are still configured the same way they were configured on that morning in 1683 or whenever it was, the signing of the Treaty of Westphalia, the modern nation state came into being, and the modern nation state is a bunch of warring competing tribes. Mm -hmm. And we've got a bunch of 17th century warring competing tribes trying to face up to a bunch of hugely globalized 21st century problems. And that's issue number one. We don't have the right culture. The culture of governance worldwide must change from fundamentally competitive to fundamentally collaborative. Now, I don't mean we have to get rid of competition. We couldn't if we tried. It's a part of human nature. It's lifted billions out of poverty. It's only a problem when it's the only altar at which we worship. And that's been the case for the last 80 to 100 years. So you can mix collaboration and competition very effectively if you know what you're doing. So that's, that's kind of the message to governments. And of course, we can go into that in more detail. And then the other problem, just to set the scene, is, as I said, the behavior of people. So again, we go back to that, that flip chart and that list of 30 terrifying challenges. Take another step back. What else do they all have in common? They've all been caused by the behavior of people, all of them. Mm -hmm. They are all self-inflicted wounds. And I don't say that because I want to blame us. <clears throat> Poor us, you know, we do our best. But the simple fact of the matter is that that provides the solution. If people are the problem, then people are the solution. So every single global challenge can be assigned to a set of human behaviors. And every set of human behaviors can be assigned to a set of human attitudes. And every single human attitude can be assigned to the way that you were brought up, either the way you were educated or the way you failed to be educated. Something to do with the context in which you grew up that equips you with a set of views, values, virtues, skill sets that are either making you do the right thing or do the wrong thing as far as the progress and survival of humanity depends. So argument number two is we can change humanity by changing the way that we bring people up. And that's a project which we can talk about later if, if we have enough time, which is called the good generation, which is basically a global plan to try to raise a generation of children after, after the current generation who are equipped to run towards the global challenges instead of running away from them as yours and my generation have done. Well, let's definitely get into that um, later in the conversation, but I just want to sort of like step back a little bit to talking about the behaviour of people. Clearly, we've seen an enormous rise in tribalism, people identifying them through, you know, through effectively a culture war. You only have to look at what's happening in the US and the UK uh, at the moment. Um, do you think this is something that's just cyclical or is it fundamentally sort of structural? I think we're it's something we're fundamentally vulnerable to. And I think it's um, a universal and permanent temptation for the people who profit from division. And there are a great many of them. Um, Donald Trump, perhaps the, the most obvious example of that. Um, his, his power and his influence derives from uh, herding people into warring competing tribes, even within 
an individual nation state. And there are always going to be people and institutions and organizations who benefit from stimulating that tribalism. As I say, we are, as human beings, um, infinitely vulnerable to that kind of behavior because it's inside us. We have a tendency toward tribalism. It's much easier for us to judge other people and their mysterious behaviors according to the set, the group that they're in, rather than the mysteries of individual character. It's so much easier for me to say to you, Greg, you know, the reason you're like that is because, is because you're a white male. That's so much easier and so much quicker and more efficient than saying, I know why you're saying that. It's because you were brought up in this way and you've got this set of, it takes forever to do that. And yeah. so it's just laziness really. Right. Much, much. I mean, honestly, if I had a dollar for every email I get every day that says it's people like you that I probably have about thirty eight dollars by now. So so um, so the 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 opportunity for um, this kind of uh, wicked populism and our necessity to submit to it is invariably there and will yeah. always, always, always happen. But it doesn't have to. And the truth of the matter, I'm convinced, is that these tribes actually really don't exist. And what I find myself saying to people so often these days, you know, somebody will come along and say, ah, hey, you're just a globalist. And I always feel like saying to them, you know, that globalist or that localist or that left winger or that right winger or that conservative or that progressive or whatever you want to call them, it's not the member of an enemy tribe. It's just you on a different day. Mm -hmm. Think about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a globalist, absolutely classic globalist. And yet, of course, I worry about the little village I live in. And I suppose you might say that my values are somewhat more <clears throat> progressive than conservative, but I have, I'm sympathetic with a whole lot of conservative policies. And if we're just honest with ourselves, and we look at elections, and we say, you know, actually, I vote for a party. I don't belong to a party. Most of us these days, we buy tracks, we don't buy albums. We buy policies, we don't buy sets of policies strung together by some random ideology. None of that makes sense anymore. <laughs> I'm not bursting into tears, I'm, I'm coughing. <laughs> you talked about governance um, mm. and you've come up with a, a framework um, mm. that can help uh, uh, countries move forward and become sort of uh, you know, more collaborative called the good country equation. Hmm. You maybe just want to sort of outline what that is a little bit and, and, and why that can be impactful, please. Yeah, sure. I mean, this one's a little bit unexpected, but it just comes from a from a quirk in my own career. Um, I've been advising the governments of, of, of countries all over the world for 20 years or so. And when I started off, one of the subjects that I was most interested in and that I was always being asked about by countries is this strange idea that um, countries have got images, they, they've got brands just like products in a marketplace. Mm -hmm. And the quality of that image helps them to compete in the global marketplace. So if you're lucky enough to be a country like, I don't know, Sweden or Switzerland, that's got a really powerful, really positive brand image, everybody loves them. The consequence of that is that everything is easy and everything is cheap for Sweden or Switzerland. For them to get foreign investment, to get tourists, to attract talented migrants, to sell their products and services, for Swedish and Swiss people to get great jobs, it's so easy because people already believe it anyway. And you're branded, even as a person, you're branded by the country you come from and people prejudge you on that basis. If on the other hand, a country is unfortunate enough to have a weak or a negative image, everything is expensive and everything is difficult. You're constantly having to explain who you are and remind people that you may not be as bad as they think, that the prejudices may be out of date. This is a hugely important issue. 
I mean, country image may sound like a somewhat trivial or superficial thing, but actually it influences the flow of trillions of dollars, not to mention a lot of other things as well, the flow of people. And um, in fact, it, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the reasons why uh, inequality is growing at such a rate, because poor countries don't just have to cope with weak institutions and, and, and weak economies um, and weak infrastructure. They also have to do battle against the headwind of a negative reputation mm -hmm. that casts everything they do in a negative light. You know, a country with a bad image can do something really good and people will immediately assign it to some impure motivation and mm -hmm. it becomes a bad deed. So um, this is really, really bad news. So I, unfortunately, this is a fascinating subject and we can easily get sidetracked. But the, the, the main issue is that governments were asking me about this stuff over and over again, saying, how can we get a better image? And all I could really say to them was, there's no point in trying to do it via propaganda. I mean, I called, I used the word brand, but it's very misleading because this isn't about branding. You can't market a country into a better image. People have been trying for centuries and it just doesn't work. There's no evidence whatsoever. There's no correlation I found in my own research between the amount of money a government spends on bragging about its country and the quality of that image. It just doesn't do a thing. It's a waste of money. Um, so what does work? Well, I've been measuring the images of countries with this huge international poll I've been doing every year since 2005, which is called the Nation Brands Index. It's that terrible word again. And by um, 2012, I discovered that I'd collected a billion data points measuring what more than 70% of the world's population thinks about 50 different countries and also 50 cities in, in the sister survey. So I attacked that database and tried to extract a simple answer from it. Why do people admire country A more than country B? Because that's a hugely important question to answer. And it turned out, cut a long story short, that the countries that people admire most on the whole are by a wide margin, the ones that they perceive contribute something to the international community. They're the ones that do good outside their own borders. And that's logical. Um, most people don't like to think about other countries. It's confusing and there are too many of them. So my favorite country is the country I don't have to worry about. Norway, classic example. Norway is a marginal player in global affairs, but it's got a massive image. Everybody thinks Norway is incredible. Why? If you ask them in, in, in surveys, they say, oh, well, because they did this thing called the um, Oslo Peace Accord, and Oslo's in Norway, right? I mean, it's as simple as that. And the consequence of that is that they reward Norway with their tourism, with their investment, they buy its products, they hire its people, and so it goes on. So part of the good country equation says, we don't have to go to governments anymore and ask them to be moral, because nation states are not moral entities. You, you, you don't need to go to a country and say, please do more about climate change or migration, because you should, because it's the right thing to do. You'll get nowhere saying that. Now you can go to them and you can say here, demonstrably, I can, I can show to you that it is in your short-term, immediate, economic, direct interest to behave yourself because it'll improve your image. And if you improve your image, you'll get more money. It's as simple as that. And that's quite a powerful motivation because it means something to politicians. Right, so propaganda works internally, but not externally. Um, right. I have to ask you, um, in view of you, what you've said about collaboration over competition, what kind of impact do you think COVID-19 is? We've seen how interdependent we are on each other. We've seen that, you know, supply chains are very complex. They're global. Uh, we've seen the way that viruses can transmit across borders. Um, do you think that's going to uh, shift the dial in some way that, that the nation states will understand that really cooperation now is vital uh, in order for us to sort of really deal with sort of not just this challenge, but many other challenges? Um, I think the only answer to that, Greg, is yes and no. 
I mean, like like everything else in our complicated world. As well, earlier on, I guess. So, I guess the answer is mostly yes. Mostly yes, and a bit no. Um, <clears throat> like most things that happen in this incredibly complex world, it turns the dial in both directions simultaneously, yeah. or else it's turning two dials. So, on on the on the one hand, obviously the bad thing about the about the coronavirus epidemic is that it's resulted in the deaths of the, the sometimes yep. needless deaths of of, of large numbers of people, uh, and that's a terrible thing. It's also convinced the um, the localists that globalization is a bad thing because if there were no globalization, there'd be no pandemic, and they're right. On the other hand, it's also convinced the globalists that globalization is a good thing because without globalization, we wouldn't be able to cooperate and collaborate and work together to fix it as we're doing. And they're also right. Um, but I think the reason why I think that the the pandemic, for all the suffering that it's brought us will ultimately prove to be a good thing is because it's finally showed us humanity very dramatically that we have no special dispensation to survive we could be wiped out mm -hmm. and we needed to believe that because in the context of climate change we'd failed to make that leap of the imagination we couldn't perceive climate change as a genuine enemy of humanity a genuine threat to our survival now we've got one staring us in the face and i think that's been very beneficial to our understanding of climate change in the longer term we've realized that we do risk extinction if we're not careful and i think it's also been really good just for a sense of of community the consequence of everybody all over the world watching their phones or watching the TV night after night after night, those, of, those who've got those communication uh, links, of course, and seeing everybody, irrespective of their race, religion, creed, looks, dress, whatever, suffering in the same way from the same enemy. It's made us feel like a single species inhabiting a single planet. And we need that feeling so badly because otherwise we'll never get our act together. Well, I've barely sort of scratched the surface with the questions that I've had, but um, we're, I'm seeing here on the Q&A a lot of questions from uh, the audience. So uh, if you're uh, OK with that, Simon, I'd like to jump into that. And um, the first one is from anonymous attendee. Um, interesting. He's uh, this anonymous person. Uh, he or she says, uh, you know, your vision's remarkable. And uh, this person has read your book twice, which is a good start. Um, the question's about economics. How yeah. do we solve financial challenges, especially it, now that it looks like a lot of central banks are looking towards uh, migrating to sort of digital money. This is, mm -hmm. seems to be something that's happening in China, obviously, mm -hmm. that the, the Chinese central bank seems to be very keen on this. What are the economic, I guess, how do we solve this massive global uh, question of inequality? Oh, boy. I'm way out of my comfort zone when talking about macroeconomics. This is really not my <laughs> subject. But I do think um, in a very general sense, that the arrival of new forms of digital currency is potentially very interesting and very useful because the currencies that we've used up until this point um, are merely neutral tokens. Um, they reward uh, economic transactions. They exist only within the economy and don't extend beyond it. The interesting thing about the potential future of, of digital currencies and cryptocurrencies and things like that is that they can link directly to other forms of behavior than the economic. Mm -hmm. They can reward other types of behavior. You can you can mine crypto coins by behavior rather than just by creating a value from a financial transaction. And so the potential there, I think, is is absolutely revolutionary. How that's precisely going to happen, it's not for me to say. But rest assured that as I, I always am careful to surround myself with economists. Well, naturally. Um, 
question from Julie McDonald, uh, who saw your keynote at EAIE in Finland, and she started a good generation course at the French Engineering School, uh, where she teaches English. Now, apparently during your talk, you suggested Twitter might be a good a good way in order to, to motivate things, and students don't seem so keen. Um, yeah. So I guess the question is kind of twofold. First of all, you wanted to talk a little bit about the Good Generation Project, mm -hmm. so I, I think this would be a good chance, but also like, how do you get people on board? How do you get people motivated as part of this? Yeah, um, well, thanks for the question. We've corresponded um, on, on this topic um, and I answered some questions uh, to her, her students, um, really great questions that they sent in. Um, let me just explain the project very, very briefly because it doesn't, it doesn't take more than a minute to do. Um, we all know that um, if, if you want to, uh, to create properly functioning societies, the answer, almost whatever the question is, the answer is always education because that's what makes us as human beings. And we also know that educating children in the right way will equip them better to deal with the world that they're growing up in. We also know that conventional education in most countries is somewhat out of date. It doesn't really equip children to live in the realities of the world that we're actually living in today because it's changed so fast. And educational structures and systems are quite rightly um, rusted into place, you shouldn't be able to change them too easily. That's almost more of a danger than having them out of date. So we've got kids being brought up in a way that doesn't really work for the moment they're projected out into society. We know that needs to change. We also know, you look at um, Greta Thunberg in Sweden, she's a perfect example of how if you teach kids climate change, the moment they leave school, they run towards climate change instead of running away from it. The trouble is that there are a million of these projects going on around the world, and almost none of them are, none of them are bigger than a single nation. Most of them are the size of school districts. They're all teaching different things. Some people are teaching citizenship, some are teaching climate change, some are teaching tolerance, and it's all a big piecemeal. It's a jigsaw puzzle that you couldn't fit together because it was never designed to be put together. And the consequence of that is that we're not only not making a better generation, we're also actually creating further divisions because all of those approaches are are so culturally divided. So I think my view is that now is the time in history for us to say we need a global compact on this. We all need to agree on what are the fundamental values or virtues or stories or skill sets that children need for the next generation and to crowdsource those views. So we have a gigantic AI moderated global conversation to discuss with everybody in the world from 195 countries, anybody who wants to participate, how do you see the children of tomorrow? How can generation 1A be even better than generation Z, which is the best generation we've ever had? Um, and then we turn that into a compact and we get all the education ministers in the world to float into St. Mark's Square in Venice on their gondolas and sign it. I mentioned St. Mark's Square because I've been promised that I can borrow it for the signing ceremony. Um, <laughs> and that, that's it, that's the project. And, and to anybody who doubts that that's possible, anybody who says, and it's a fair comment, but the education of children is so sensitive, it's so culturally uh, um, driven, how can we ever get all of these so different countries with such different agendas to agree on something as sensitive as that? And to those people, I say, Go back and take another look at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or the UN Charter, two of the most staggering and beautiful achievements of humanity. And they show that if in times of intense global stress after the end of the Second World War, in the year of the pandemic, if we need to get our act together and agree on things, no matter how sensitive they are, we can do it. And I think the time is right now to do that with education.
we're pretty much out of time. I'd just like to ask you a couple more questions, Simon. So if you could, uh, relatively brief answers, if you don't mind. Uh, first of all, one from uh, from the audience. Um, can you just give us an example of a government that's that's a good kind of case study of collaboration? It's, it's, it's able to collaborate in a very in a very positive and dynamic way. Yeah, it's spreading all over the place. Actually, there there are particular examples are South Korea, which has started doing that more and more than ever before, and really playing a quite a significant role in its regional affairs as well as uh, partnering with countries in Africa on development and stuff like that. Um, Chile, Costa Rica, Finland, um, New Zealand. Now, in some senses, these are the usual suspects, but why should that make us groan? It should make us applaud. You know, these are countries that are trying to be more internationally minded and you can see it benefiting them. I guess the message behind it is that if you do cooperate and collaborate, that doesn't dilute or diminish the quality of what you do, it improves it. Because the more you stir up the cultural gene pool in having discussions with other countries, the better the policy ideas become. It's a good thing to do, not a sad compromise. One final question. The UK is leaving the EU 1st of January uh, next year. Um, how does it maintain its standing in the world and the way that it's perceived in the world? How, what advice would you be giving uh, the Prime Minister, the Foreign Office, the Department of Trade and Industry at the moment? What, how best to approach that? I, to be honest, I think it's a matter of really, really thinking hard about this phrase Global Britain, um, which is used a lot in UK government circles at the moment. And the um, the Foreign uh, Service uses that phrase over and over and over again to explain to people what Brexit, post-Brexit Britain is about. It's about global Britain. Think really hard about what that actually means and try to make it true. So this is not, let's hope, in the eventuality about Britain turning its back on the international community and on the principle of multilateralism. It's about Britain realising that this is a moment where they have to step up their game and if you genuinely want to make a case for how that's, it's possible to do that even more effectively outside the European than Union than inside, I guess you can make that case. But what I would personally like to see, and I think many of us would like to see, is Britain immediately proving that this is actually about Britain being more ambitious, about more multilateralism, about doing more useful deals, not to benefit the UK economy. We've got so much money, for God's sake. It's about bringing together other countries in entrepreneurial coalitions to tackle the global challenges. And if we can show that we can do that more effectively outside the EU than inside the EU, then I will do a U-turn and I'll say, I'm not sorry that Brexit happened. <laughs> Thank you, Simon, for your time today. Great point to end that. I highly recommend uh, your book, the, the Good Country Equation, which is available uh, wherever you buy your books. Um, thank you to everyone watching the session. Much appreciated you joining us today. If you did enjoy, please do check out uh, the rest of the Wired Foresight series, which includes uh, discussions with the renowned history of historian of technologies. Uh, Historian of Technology, George Dyson, uh, on the analog, analog Revolution. Uh, writer and broadcaster Nina Schick on deep fakes and the Infocalypse. Uh, technologist Kate Callow on the future of the AI ecosystem. Uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us and thank you, Simon, again. Take care.